Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggyos. Everybody, Shane Terrio here. How's everybody doing? I'm doing good. Thanks for asking. Out here in sunny Southern California. You're listening to a track from my record called Dirty Power. That's the title track, Dirty Power. Um, all right. A couple of announcements before we get to today's special guest. T-shirts, riffraff t-shirts. You asked for them, you got them. They're up on my website, shaneterrio.com. If you go to the store, you'll see merchandise, and then the t-shirts are conveniently located there. There's about three or four new, um, you can get all kinds of colors, and there's a couple of new designs. They're really great. I had a lot of people order them so far. I apologize if you order like a 2XL or 3XL. Those take longer. It's hard to, harder to source those right now. I guess the coronavirus is to blame for even triple XL t-shirts. I don't know why. Um, also, you know, consider signing up on my, my website. It's free. Uh, I also have a, um, a little extra membership if you like. I share little lessons and clips from backstage and blah, blah, blah. If you get a chance, I would appreciate you go to iTunes. Give me a like. Comment would be better. A good comment. And, um... Nothing else. Enjoy the conversation today with special guest KK Downing. Let's get to it. Thank you. My guest today is Mr. K.K. Downing, one of the co-founders and original guitar player for arguably one of the greatest heavy metal bands of all time. Not arguably, they are one of the greatest heavy metal bands of all time, Judas Priest. But also K.K.'s new project, K.K.'s Priest, a band which continues his legacy. You're listening to a tune right now called Return 
of the Sentinel, which is a nod to the original Sentinel, which I believe is on the Defenders of the Faith record. I could be mistaken, but Screaming for Vengeance and Defenders of the Faith are two of my faves, and this new record continues in that line really heavy. So, um, and also, real quick, you might want to check out KK's book, Heavy Duty, Days and Nights, and Judas Priest. I read that before we did this interview and uh, really recommend it. Here we go. Without further ado, the one and only KK Downing. New record is called Sermons of the Sinner, KK's Priest. I understand you're a fellow, fellow guitar player, Shane. That's right. Honored to talk to you, KK. I've been a fan for a long time. Yeah. yeah. Welcome you to Riff Raff. I know I have a lot of guitar players. You know, maybe we'll be a little more guitar centric in this interview because uh, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of things I never knew about you guitar wise. So maybe we could answer a few things. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, I want to talk sure. about KK's Priest for sure. But congratulations on your record. I, I know it just came out. And um, I think last week, right? Finally. Yes. Yeah. Finally. So congrats on that. Thank you, um, man. Yeah, I mean, as a guitar player, you know, I don't think you ever really got your due. I think some of that is probably because, you know, you were in a, a guitar duo with Glenn Tipton. And I think probably the time, you know, the decades of the 70s, 80s, it was such a guitar centric thing. You know, you had Eddie Van Halen and these people. And I think you were kind of a package. So maybe you didn't get your your due. But yeah. I have a lot of people that, you know, a lot of listeners that, you know, myself included, yeah. are big fans. I I definitely should have done more, you know, because obviously, you know, I had the capabilities to do it. Uh, but Glenn seemed to just somehow, it can happen in bands, <laughs> it can just happen. I just kind of missed it along the way, really, you know. Um, but, you know, maybe I was always expecting Glenn just to say, well, you know, um, but, but, you know, the longer solo, because we used to divide the solos up at the end of the record. Okay, um, we, we're near the end of the recording. You know, <clears throat> you do the solo on this song, I'll do the solo. I was curious but how I, that happened. Yeah. I always ended up with the shorter solos, you know, and I always ended up with the solos that were more difficult to, uh, in, to, to solo over because they weren't like you, you, you found those, you know, uh, E, C, and D or something, you know what I mean? Right, or G, C, right. and E, you know, they, mm. would, they would, I would get the ones like the song in Sinner where it was just, where it was just E and D. So I'm working with two notes, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm working with two notes, you know. I've got the the minor key of E and I've got the seventh. So I've got the, I've got the root note in the seventh to work with. So I need to <laughs> solo over that. But because... And I was aware of that at the time, but the thing is, I'm such a guy that's up for a challenge, you know. I mean, I was a guy, I'm up for a musical challenge. I've got to entertain people, and I've got this to play over, you know. And um, so I kind of liked that challenge, even to the point where I thought, right, so I'm going to play this live, and I'm just going to play an improvised solo, and I did that in the studio as well. And so I kind of liked these challenges you know uh but i kind of got the more difficult uh songs mm -hmm. the more difficult songs to uh to solo over well in your book you know you i know you're a big hendrix fan you said you got to see hendrix like four or five times and and it's really great part of your book but i'm curious because you 
you said you made a conscious attempt to, you know, you didn't want to go down the blue. I'm talking strictly as your formative years as a guitar player. You didn't want to go strictly. Everybody was blues, blues, blues. And who else were you listening to? And did you have any, how did you learn? Cause you don't really talk about that. I never heard. Did you have any, there was no tablature. There was no YouTube in those days. I mean, were you just listening to records or? Yeah, it was insane. Really. It was insane when I was young trying to do this, you know, because in fact, it wasn't until a, 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 just a few years ago now, I had Robert, Robert, because Robert, he actually lives not too far from me and always has done. Um, but I heard him on a local radio station and he was, and he mentioned it then. He said, you know, back in the old days, we didn't have anything to record on when we were writing songs. We just have to, used to have to play it that many times and just hope somebody would remember it the next day. And that's what happened. <laughs> that's what happened. That's, what, that's exactly <laughs> what happened. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, and I've forgotten all about that. We didn't no answer it. machine? You'd ever call your own answer machine? We or didn't you, have anything to nothing. record on. We just had to remember it. <laughs> we, we had to remember it, you know, make sure we played it enough times to remember how the riff went the next day. What a concept. <laughs> what so a concept that was. We didn't, we didn't have any of those those things. That was kind of insane. But like I say, I grew up in the 60s and, um, and I, I was asked to join a pop band, which I wanted to join because to try and make some money, you know. I was only about 17, something like that. And they would give me sheet music to learn, to learn the songs, you know, right? Uh, the pop songs. And, but I had a record, a turntable, and obviously you just put the LP on it, keep playing the record, you know, and trying to learn it. Um, but then I would obviously refer to the sheet music as well, as best I could. I was slow. I wasn't a pr prolific reader but I did that quite a bit um, and then later on I used some sheet music trying to learn some songs that I wanted to learn you know and it was obscure it was like uh, my girlfriend had this Leonard Cohen album mm. you know and it was um, back in the 60s and um, and and I was interested I was interested to learn some of these songs which I did in fact I learned them all from the sheet sheet music the one that's got like Suzanne on and, and all of that. I can't remember the other titles. But I was interested in his right-hand finger-picking technique. Oh. And, and I was really glad that I did that because I actually became, I kept that with me all my life, you know, the different right-hand finger-picking uh, techniques from that album. Wow, that's really interesting. I would have never guessed that. Yeah, yeah. so I did. I learned all of those. And so, like say, uh, like say, I don't have a guitar here, but you know, I was kind of interested in the combination, different combinations that he was using, you know, more so than the chord structures, you know. I was, and so I've kept that with me, and that's held me in good stead through life, mm. to be honest, mm. you know. Um, so yeah, so I did that, and then, um, you know. And then at, at some point, I, I just essentially played by ear. But what I did, what I did, because of getting into 
you know, I was then, I was kind of swimming. Because I, I didn't want to be a blues player. You know what I mean? I liked the blues. But I knew that there was a style of music around that hadn't been invented yet. That, that's the truth of it. Because in like 1965, I heard the Kinks play You Really Got Me and I liked it. And I thought, why do I like this song? This is a pop band. They're on, they're on the, in the charts. All the, but I liked that song. I liked the Trolls, You Really Got Me. Jimi Hendrix straight away with Purple Haze, Foxy Lady. These riff orientated songs really got to me, you know. And, and even like Wild Thing. Why did I like the Trolls? Because I like Wild Thing, you know. And, and then later, these artists, these heavy, heavy metal artists, you know, like, like I saw in 1978, I saw Van Halen support Black Sabbath in Birmingham, um, and they played You Really Got Me, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm thinking, mm-hmm. that's why I like this song back in 1965, because this mm-hmm. is, is a rock, hard rock, heavy rock, or heavy metal, or somewhere in between, yeah. you know, but I had that, so... So I wanted to hear more of this music in the 60s when I was a teenager. So the only way to do it was to create it myself. And straight away, I sat down with Alan Atkins and we wrote songs, you know, uh, which became, you know, Victim of Changes and, right. and all of these songs, Winter and Cheater and Never Satisfied and, and uh, Run of the Mill and, and Dream of Deceiver and all of these songs, you know. And I have recordings of us playing these songs as a four-piece, you know. And uh, and then when Rob joined, we played them. We did a lot of shows, you know. Mm-hmm. But we never had any recordings. But I've got one recording. But there's a few bits around. But but you see, and then when people used to book us as a band, nobody could say what type of style of music we played. So they used to call us a progressive blues band. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Tonight, Judas Priest, progressive blues band. <laughs> I'm going, okay. Because we didn't even have rock bands back then, you know. As a point in the 60s, we had, we had rock and roll, but we didn't want to be rock and roll. That was Bill Haley and, and Elvis. Oh, uh, yeah. Like Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But when, then when 1970 came, we had rock bands like Led Zeppelin, you're a rock band. Deep Purple, now you're a rock band, you know. And then we got labelled as a rock band, then a hard rock band, then a heavy metal, and then a heavy rock band, and then then a heavy metal. So this evolution, this journey that I was on, was coming good all the time, really. It was getting there, it was getting there, it was getting there, you know. Yeah. Creating this music that didn't really have its own identity or label. In fact, people were so unsure about what we were doing, it kept changing, didn't it? You know, because one minute we're a hard rock band. No, no, Jesus Christ, you're a heavy rock band. No, well, it's, it's always been heavy. heavy. And, and, you know, you, the, I don't know, I'm sure you've seen it, but the, what is it, the Reading Festival 1975 is on YouTube, some eight millimeter yeah. clip. And it's just yeah. amazing to, to watch that and hear it. I mean, there's nobody that heavy back then. I mean, Sabbath, you know, but that's it. And, yeah. and to see I, you, you're both playing SGs too, which was amazing. <laughs>
and um, and at that then you see what happened was most of the progressive blues bands usually wore denim, you know, a lot of the times, a lot of bands. And they were great. We had so many great bands, didn't we? You know, from, you know, Rory Gallagher, Free, you know, Bloodwind Peak, Jethro Tull. I mean, it went on and on and on the list of the bands, you know, uh, Savoy Brown and, you know, it went on. It was relentless, and they were all great, wonderful artists. But there was people like me and other people around the world, probably of a similar age, we had a different idea. And so when I first heard Black Sabbath, I went, fuck, oh, great. Thanks for that. I'm so happy. It wasn't exactly what I had in mind, but at least there's other bands, you know. Right. Um, at least there's other guys that have got a similar kind of thing in their mind. And there must have been other people, you know, around the world, probably Frank Marino and other people, you know, uh, had a different thing going on, which was good. And so that encouraged me, really, to get on to... Because you've got to have great encouragement to persevere and spend your whole life creating something. And you don't know if people... It's because it's such an unknown entity, right. whether it's actually going to be a saleable item, you know, or whether people are just going to flush it down the toilet. So you carry on and you carry on and you carry on. But well, that's of- one of the things I always admired about Priest. I mean, with Stained Class was, what, 78, 79? And, and it, it, you guys never, that what was going on at that time, punk and disco, I mean, you'd never wavered and never changed throughout genres i mean nirvana and grunge and you still were metal that's what i always loved about priest and what you're doing now it's the same it's just you by yourself you know but as a, as a musician the only thing i know is that i really adhered I, I didn't adhere myself to the minor and major pentatonic because that's the formula that blues players you know will you know it should go right. to what so i didn't go there i went straight to the natural minor scale, you know, I just, that was it because that incorporates those scales anyway, but I've got the extra notes to play with. Sure. So kind of that's what I always did, you know. Um, and then, you know, playing by ear, you go to other scales as well, you know, even chromatic, you know, um, obviously diminished and you go into a few other territories as well. Uh, you, you've naturally got pentatonic stuff in there as well because you're naturally go there but i was kind of everything to me was kind and still now i'm very very much a dear very much so i like to obviously intertwine and integrate different scales now because that's a load of fun now you know since the 80s i entered into that i'm thinking i need to sharpen the tools up a little bit here you know and start (laughs) to get into harmonic minor and um whole tone half tone and you know, the Phrygian and all the modes and learn, you know. Um, I'm always curious as to why modes are so complicated to so many. If I think if I give a tutorial one day, obviously, the modes is a scale within a scale, you know. It's the same notes. It's just, it's yeah, starting on notes. different notes. You just, yeah. you just start and finish on a different one. Yeah. Why is it so it's complicated? It's just the context of the, yeah, the, the actual mode, if you. Yeah, they're like I look at them like flavors or colors, I guess you know. But it's even well, I mean, without getting too complicated, but even like a, a double harmonic major scale, 
you know, you still get modes within that scale. You sure. just start on the different notes. And then the, so maybe I'll just do a do do something. At that some would point. be great. Yeah. But but um, Downing, that would be. But, I'd, I'd buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but but so but you know why do you know? Because I, I grew up in the early seventies, obviously. I mean that album Deep Purple and Rock was a great album, but I was a big early, very very early Scorpions and very early UFO fan, you know. Because I, I thought that um, you know obviously very good guitar players, and um, but I simply liked what they were doing song wise, really, you know. And um, uh, so I was a big fan there, and. Uh, and I actually, with those bands, I actually heard more, you know, comprehensively movements within the Aeolian scale <clears> than I did, you know, just the basic pentatonic. I thought maybe we could talk about how you came up with some of the riffs on uh, Sermons of the Sinner. I mean, your approach to songwriting, uh, I'm interested in that because I know maybe back in the priest days when the um, budgets facilitated, you know, you guys camping out in the studio and writing more in the studio as opposed to now where everything's more internet based. I mean, how did you approach writing some of these riffs? Yeah, I think I just went, um, Shane, you know, I just sat down Christmas. It was virtually Christmas Day on 2019, you know, and, um, you know, and just shut myself away. I live on my own, don't have, don't, don't have a family, just my mom and a couple of sisters, two sisters. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I thought that I'll just, I'll just, um, I'll just sit down and uh, and put an album together, and I just went <laughs> on to autopilot. You know, for somebody like me, after all of these years in the business, for me to just go on to autopilot wasn't really a difficult thing to do. I mean, I did have the help, obviously, as guitar players. We always carry now, obviously, with computers, a catalogue of ideas. A lot of stuff's been discarded, thrown out. Your bandmates didn't like it you know, or whatever, but maybe you always thought it was a decent idea, you know. But so I took a couple of things from there, you know, but not much really. Um because I just had um I just had I just came up essentially with song titles, working titles and a sentiment to go with that title, you know, which enabled me to put you know, some lyrical ideas, right. you know, um, down. And um, and also, if I do like vocal melodies, I'm, I tend to go with the first ones that I come up with, which is probably going to be the most kind of 
obvious and commercial ones, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So sure. I often use that. If I come up with a melody line, I don't tend to milk it and work it too much to make it more intricate or fancy or anything. I tend to just go with it if it, if it delivers up what you want it to. Um, and also, to be honest, between, you know, obviously you're a musician as well. I didn't want to stress myself out trying to come up with um, musical ideas, you know, for the vocal parts, musical ideas that were too kind of not complicated, but clever or, do you know what I mean, musically right. more, you, you know what I mean? Because you know what it's like. So if you leave, sometimes uh, ideas that are a, a little bit more simplistic, you know, cool, but less complicated, leaves a lot more room for vocal melodies, for orchestration on the top, doesn't it, Shane? Sure. Yeah. So to move about more, you know, you know, you know, you know the way it is. If the guitar part's going like this, up and down and up and down, it's hard for the vocals right. to fit in there. So I didn't want to stress myself out. And so what happened was I came up with some guitar riffs, and I'm thinking... Is, is this is this good enough? Should it be more, you know, complex or whatever? Um, but I just went with them, and the more I live with them, and then when started to put the vocals and melody lines on top, they work so well together. I'm really glad that I kept it, you know, more straightforward underneath, you know. And so using kind of those tricks of the trade and stuff like that, if all, if all that makes it makes absolute sense. And, you know, one of the genius things that I always loved about Priest were even on a record like Rock and Roller, where the where the where the um, the guitar sounds weren't necessarily really saturated. It was just always that heaviness. And I think I, I read somewhere where you were talking about the concept of light and shade, maybe yeah, uh, yeah. when writing and leaving space. I mean, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely light and shade. We used to call it that. Years ago, you know, in uh, from day one almost, really, but certainly in the, in the early seventies, when we were putting albums together, you know, because what happens is that um, I think it's fair to say it's hard to listen to the same intensity, for example, for a whole album. Like if you had ten painkillers on a song, right. It would be hard to listen to. Yeah, painkiller is you know. pretty heavy. Yeah. You want to let, give the, the listener a bit of a break and take them on a journey. You know, it's a bit of a roller coaster. And light and shade, I guess we talk about the intensity, you know. So, so we need certain ingredients. We need the tempo changes. So we need, I mean, you could take the great classic albums of, of all time, you know, um, if you have Deep Purple in Rock and you've got Speaking, but you've got Charlie Time, you know, and you've got medium paced songs. So it's kind of a formula that kind of we always kind of worked to, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still works today. And I, and I do believe that that's the case, you know, mm-hmm. because when you bring it down, and, it, and it's like a live performance when you put a set list together, you take that into consideration as well. Right. Not to pound the listener, you know, for 20 minutes nonstop. You have to pull and push. And like you say, we call it light and shade. So that is pretty important as well. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. But going back to some of the basics as well, when you want to create some of those songs, like on Sermons of the Sinner, with songs like Brothers of the Road, Raise Your Fists, and, and uh, Wild and Free, songs that are kind of comparable to other parking lot songs, I might want to call those, you know, or call them driving songs, whatever you want to call them, comparables like Living After Midnight, you know, Breaking the Law. Mm-hmm. Hot Rocking, Head Out to the Highway, you know, The Living After Midnight, whatever. You know, those type of songs, they're a very important ingredient in, in what I feel that, that I've always done and, and probably should always do, you know, on a heavy metal album. So you've got songs that are just like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to rock out, get to the parking lot, meet our mates, drink some beers. We're going to a concert tonight. That kind of up type of, you know, feeling. You know, the the rebellious type of songs as well. I like to turn the clock back as well and go, I want to live those moments as well, you know. <laughs> and so, um, uh, yeah, we're, we're outraisers, rule breakers, you know. Even though I'm not now because I'm going to be 70 years old next month, I still like to think that I've got that ingredient inside me, whether I do it or not, to the name. But, like, obviously, I adhere to songs like that because it takes me back, you know, to a, uh, to a time when it, when it did happen. And, uh, and on top of that, you've got songs that are kind of more emotional, more sentiments, more meaning, you know, mm-hmm. um, on the album. You know, like Return of the Sentinel or, you know, um, Metal Through and Through and Sermons of the Sinner. These, mess- these messages, these rejoicements and this celebration and, and these songs that are just, um, I have a little, have more to say, you know, and, and are more orchestrated, you know. Um, right, sure. But I think that it has worked in the past and I think it's... Um, it's a combination of ingredients that works really quite nicely on a kind of, you know, archetypal, traditional uh, heavy metal album. You know, it yeah. worked for me and it worked very well, you know, uh, in Judas Priest, you know, on the albums that the fans seem to like the best, you know. It's a great record, KK. Congratulations again. Thank you, um, mate. I hate the word gear, but if you could talk about, I know in the early days, maybe that Reading Festival where you guys, I know there was limited choices as far as effects pedals and things like fuzzes, but were you, I think you used a treble booster. Is that correct? Mm. And it was that pretty much it 
for like rock and roll or the early albums? Honestly, like I say, I've got I've got um, a couple of those old ones here. But if you get like a fifty watt Marshall, you can be a hundred watts. It's just very very loud. Yeah. You know, because when you just plug the treble booster in to a hundred watt, it will take take your head off. You know, but. <laughs> A 50 watt, what happened was, even with the treble booster, you couldn't get enough drive, you know, on the amp. Because what happened is, you drive the amp up and a 4 by 12 or 50 watt, right? But once you get up between 6 and 7, thereabouts, that's the optimum performance for that bit of kit. You know, if you, if, if, you go, you, if you go past it, you don't get any more volume, you just get more compression and it's unwanted. But the thing is, what happens is you've got this guitar sound and it's massive mm. and it does have a really great drive and it'll be the best rhythm sound you ever heard in your life, you know. But my, both myself and Glenn used that for years and years. But the thing is, when it came down to soloing, we, it didn't give us what we wanted to. You didn't have the, the drive for the sustain that you wanted to with the solos, you know. So in the studios, we had to, we had to think again. I don't know what Glenn, I can't remember what Glenn did, but I know I had various bits of kit that were in the studio that would drive the front end a little bit more for the solos. Right. No, none of us had enough drive for solos in those. We oh, were no. always looking. But the pedals that were coming out, you know, we either didn't know how to use them properly. Well, we couldn't really because, like nowadays, you can use one of those pedals that came out and you can use something like a power break, you know, and you can get them sounding great. Right. But we didn't have the power breaks back then in the, in the, in the early 70s, you know. So it was hard to make it work. And that's why if you get somebody like Ingvad that will use a, um, a Dodd or right. an um, Ibanez tube screamer on the front end, you will have to crank it up so loud, you know, obviously you get all these... You know, and um, but then if you start to put on noise suppressors and everything like that, it starts to shrink back. Yeah, shrinks and I can back. just imagine you thinking, no, no, I want, I want to hear those extra frequencies. Mm. And and he lives and performs with that, and all credit to yeah. to him. I mean, he's a master of that, you know. Um, but we needed being two guitar players, we needed more control. You know, if you had all these erroneous noise coming out. Of Glenn, I would say, Glenn, it's too, you know, we need to pull it back a little bit, you know. Did you and Glenn both get the Pete Cornish boards at the same time? Yes. It must did. have cost a fortune back then because they're still Oh, expensive. mate, I'm, I've, got, <laughs> I've got them. I've got, I've got some of them here, you know. I've got some of them, still some of them here, but we came into money, dare I say. <laughs> enough money to buy a pink cornish because we thought there's only pink floyd and bands like that that could afford those you know uh, and one day we thought we've got to up the ante here we've got to get something you know we've got to get something and um and, and that's another that's another massive massive story in itself the evolution of guitar processors and everything we know because we were out there obviously pioneering all of this stuff, you know, and uh, now it all gets condensed. Right. I think I was probably, I must have been the first guitar player or one of them ever to have a guitar tuner 
on my pedal board, you know, because when that first chord, and I've got one here, the chord with the needle came out, right. I was able to put that on my pedal board and root through it. But the only problem with, was with it, the needle was red, and with the lights, you couldn't see the needle. Uh -huh. So I took it apart and got a, an ink marker and made the needle black. Wow, that was all, clever. And put, it, and put it all together. And then I was able to switch it off silence it so I could tune on my pedal board. And of course, after a while, it all got integrated. But, wow. you know, you remember these things because up until then, you only had like the strobe tuners and stuff like that. And of course, you couldn't stick Peterson's the giant one, yeah. Yeah, all of that, you know, which I never really got into, you know. I actually never figured out how to use one of those. <laughs> I've seen guitar You know, too. honestly, my eyes went wonky. I'm, I've seen all of these. It's like radar. <laughs> but we've got to know and understand this in this whole world. The tuner is just a guide. The rest you have to do it yourself. Mm -hmm. To be honest, my guitars now, my low E is 10, 10 cents flat. My A is 10 cents flat. This is with me striking the, 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 the note as light as I can possibly strike it, you know. Mm. So I'm 10 cents flat, 10 cents flat. Two and a half cents flat, five cents flat, ten cents flat, and fifteen cents flat. Wow, that's really interesting. I've never heard of that before. Just to compensate for your your right hand, and it's wonderful. Wow. But then again, my strings are eight through thirty-eight, ah. so obviously that comes into play. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you've got to you've got to do what you've got to do it for yourself. You know. Mm -hmm. So you, so a piece of advice to all the guitar players that go out there, young, don't expect to buy a guitar tuner. Tune to the tuner and expect your guitar to be tuned, you know, right. <clears throat> everywhere because it won't be. You still have some of your hammers, KK? Yeah, 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 of course. Great guitars, you know. Had a great long relationship with the hammer. Probably Joel, right? Joel Danzig. Yeah, right? yeah. Joel's yeah. a wonderful guy, yeah. very talented guy. He's still building great guitars today. Yeah. yeah. I have a few hammers too. I think they're really unsung guitars. They were absolute, absolute quality because the thing is, I went to the factory a lot of time. And, and the main staple of what they do was their, 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 their purchasing of quality timbers, but also. The great big racks they had where the timbers just lay there to right. age. Right. You know, and that's a big part of it. And that's what makes a touring guitar, isn't it? Because we as guitar players, experienced guitar players, we just pick up the guitar. We think uh, that that's a touring quality guitar or it's not. Right. No. right. There's a big difference, mate. And we know that. Sure. We, we do know. A, a lot of the parts you can change. But the main of the headstock, the neck and the body, you can't change, you're stuck with it. Right. And you can kind of get a feel for it, can't you? That this will this yeah, will it feels it has a voice, it feels it's kind of alive. Yeah, it feels it's it's, mm -hmm. it's this will go around the world. It was you know, and it's gonna hold me in good stead. Well, I don't want to keep you too much more. Um, if I can ask you an oddball question, do you remember? Do you remember anything about the day you, you guys did, uh, Priest did Top of the Pops and Marie Osmond stormed into the 
dressing room about the Harley? Yeah, no, yeah, no, no, it wasn't the Harley. It was the bullwhip. Oh, <laughs> even better, <laughs> bullwhip. <laughs> yeah, because we did we did the rehearsal, the dress rehearsal, and Rob had his bullwhip, you know, uh, on stage. I don't know what else, but we had some props. You know, us we would grab anything. Yeah, just you know, but Rob had the bullwhip, you know, and um, and we used to actually sell badges. Um, and it said, I've been whipped by Rob Halford. <laughs> and we used to sell those at the gigs, and they were a big seller. How bad. They were. But, <laughs> but anyway, so we did the dress rehearsal, and then uh, the uh, the guy came in and said, look, uh, you guys can't use the ball whip, you know, um, because um, the Osmonds have said that they they won't they won't be performing if you use the ball whip. <laughs> <laughs> so we weren't very happy about that at all. We were uh, not happy at all. I'm thinking, you do your show and we'll do ours. Do you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. It's like, you know, I mean, um, okay, it's a family show, but what the hell, you know? It's just we're a on the whip. show. We're on the show. <laughs> and so I went, I can remember going into makeup and Marie was in the chair next to me. She got the cucumbers on her eyes and everything. You know? And these are lovely people. I'm, I'm very talented people. Right. And Marie was very pretty. Right. And I sat in the chair and the lady went, oh, yeah, you're fine. You don't need anything doing. And I felt like I was on the tip of my tongue to say something to Marie right there and then. You know what I mean? She got the towel and the cucumbers and everything. You know. <laughs> but I thought, no, I'll bite my tongue, you know. But we we did we did have a bit of a shout and that. And... Uh, and we did complain after the show, you know, after the show, as you do. But, uh, but yeah, so, um, but, you know, we're all unscathed. We did the show. Rob didn't use the whip. But, um, you know, I felt all the time we were doing the show that Rob would just pick something else up. I'm thinking he's going to do something. <laughs> Rob is going to do Because if he could have grabbed a fire extinguisher and laid it off or anything, he would have done, you know, because... You know, I'm thinking something's going to kick off, but we got through it. Oh, that's so great. But well, yeah, it was, the bull, it was the bull whip. <laughs> All right, KK. Well, thank you. And congratulations on, you know, KK's Priest. I look forward to seeing you out there. Hopefully you can do some shows soon. And everybody check out the record. Absolutely. And, yeah, we're, we're ready. of the Center. We're ready to kick some ass, honestly. I'll we bet. Really I'll bet. Get out there and meet our audiences, like every band does. But as soon as we can get some shows, we're going to be out there. And um, I, yeah, it will happen. It's undeniable. It's unstoppable now. The machinery is in effect, and uh, we need to go out and uh, and and do what we do. Looking forward to it. Great. Well, it's and a great record. And yeah. good luck with you, mate. And thank you very much. Yeah, and hope to see you out there on the road. Thank you, KK. It's a real pleasure, man. Appreciate okay, your time. Thank you, mate, as well. Take care. Bye bye. See you later. Thank you, KK, for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you for listening. If you're still with us, check out Sermons of the Sinner, KK's Priest. See you next time on Riff Raff.
special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.